and hello to you. You are listening to a Pinch Gut podcast in anticipation of this year's summer season for Pinch Gut Opera, Charpentier's Medea. My name's Genevieve Lang and I have with me Erin and Justin, who are the creative team for this summer's opera. Thank you both for joining me. Justin, I want to start with you, because Medea is such an interesting work. What is her backstory? Oh, Medea's backstory. <laughs> In five words or less, well. Um, so, she comes from Kolkos, which is at the ends of the earth for the Greeks, um, beyond, it's on the Black Sea. And Jason has met her in his pursuit of the Golden Fleece. The Golden Fleece was indeed in her city. And um, he has taken a group of Greek heroes, really, to the ends of the civilized world, beyond, in order to find this thing. And when he gets there, he finds a king, who's the, the son of the sun, the son of the sun, and uh, his daughter Medea, who has fallen in love, who falls immediately in love with Jason, um, and aids him in absolutely everything that he do- he wants, to, he needs to do to acquire the fleece, to go back to Greece, to cra- to claim his own inheritance, and so Medea um, betrays her father, helps with various incantations. She has she has supernatural powers because of this grandfather of hers that makes her related to the immortals and a particular relationship particularly with the goddess of witchcraft who is Hecate and um, endorses Jason's um, taking taking of the fleece back to Greece but they're being followed by by her family and the 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 city that she's betrayed and so she takes her brother as hostage and in order to slow up her father who's following her cuts her brother into little pieces and throws him into the sea and so the ships have to stop to collect the pieces of this brother and put him back together again and so she and Jason escape but what happens is when they get back to um, uh, Thessaly which is where Jason is from and where Jason's trying to claim his inheritance the uncle who's taken it from him won't give it up and Medea does some more sorcery in which she demonstrates to this uncle's daughters um, how to rejuvenate their father. She takes a lamb, she chops it into small pieces, she puts it in a pot, and she pulls out a young lamb. And the three daughters think, oh, well, let's do that to Dad. And so they do it to Dad, and it doesn't go so well for Dad. And so our (laughs) opera picks up where they have fled that situation. They're being pursued by angry Thessalians who want their revenge for this crime. And they've taken refuge in Corinth, in one of the most important of the Greek cities. But the locals haven't accepted Medea. She comes with a lot of bad stories. And... Uh, but they do want to keep Jason, and that's and that's the sort of springboard for the action of the opera. So, from what you describe, words like obsessive, um, re- remorseless, cruel uh, would spring to mind to describe Medea. But that's not who we meet on stage in the no, first act, is it? No, it's absolutely not. Um, the the take that that Charpentier and Corneille have here is of a woman who 
is much abused because according to the according to the lights of her culture she has devoted absolutely everything to her partner the crimes the the story that i've just told you they're not ever specifically recounted in the libretto it's referred to that there are crimes in the background but what we the person we meet is a person who is devoted at all costs to the reputation of her husband and to the protection of her family and the action unfolds in which we see how greatly she is abused by her, her, her husband, who's decided that he wants to stay in Corinth, that he's attracted to the daughter of the king, that this seems like a much better prospect for him. Um, now he's a stateless hero, and, and the forces around Madeira are conspiring to expel her. And the opera recounts how piece by piece by piece she's forced into the most extreme circumstances and then takes her revenge and then shows her power. Which we'll come to. But Indeed. I want to um, ask Erin, why was this a work that you wanted to stage, Medea? I mean, it's, it's a tragedy and Pinchgut hasn't touched tragedy for a few years. We've, goodness knows, we've been dealing with enough in our own lives. Was mm. that part of the consideration? A little bit, yeah. Charpentier has been uh, on my bucket list for many years. And actually, we were about to stage it before COVID hit. So it's one of those uh, many shows that opera companies are dealing with now, finally putting on and fulfilling our our contracts and so forth. It's wonderful to work with Justin again. And this, this work is, I, I really believe, one of the greatest uh, French tragedy lyrics um, it, it was a form that was invented by Lully. Um, and I've always had a soft spot for Charpentier because he was the underdog. Mm -hmm. Poor Lully was, well, sorry, not poor Lully, poor Charpentier was uh, constantly in the shadow of this very ruthless, very ambitious man. And the context for Charpentier's midday is that Lully has just died, actually. And so finally, the, the veritable stage of the Academy Royale, uh, the most important theatre in France, uh, was vacant for other composers. And so Charpentier saw his chance. He'd been working with Molière. Molière had a falling out with Lully. Um, working with Charpentier. Charpentier seems like a very nice man in all respects, whereas Lully wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and this opening came up. He managed to sort of weasel his way into this somewhat corrupt institution, actually, because Lully's sons inherited this monopoly and then they tried to run the show. Charpentier came in. He had the greatest actress in all of France singing the role of Madet. Um, and But unfortunately, it was not a success. Um, envious voices poisoned the audience and the institution itself. The orchestra apparently didn't like it very much and played slovenly. Um, and even though it was put on uh, 15 times, um, the, and, and connoisseurs spoke highly of its beauty. It wasn't until after his death that the French public actually acknowledged it as probably the greatest exemplar of the Lullian type of French tragedy. And Pinchcut, the last sort of French opera we've done was Plate, which was, which was uh, Rameau's revolutionary contribution to the Academy Royale even though it premiered in Versailles. But Charpentier, his debut at the Academy was not controversial, like Rameau's was later, uh, but rather it was an example of 
him showing off his craft and, and his total assimilation of this extremely noble and classic art form. And so for those reasons, I've, uh, not only for the strength of Madej, basically I could, I could listen to powerful women telling off corrupt men all night. <laughs> and that's indeed what Madej does. That's what happens. Justin's been talking about the, uh, you know, Corinth is actually somewhat corrupted. Um, and Madej spends the first half of the opera giving everyone chances, it seems, to redeem themselves. And it's true, she has, she has committed these crimes in the past, but it's a complex story. It's not, it's not grey, it's not black and white, I should say. Um, so I, for the, all these reasons, I've wanted to put it on for many years. Yeah, beautiful. Now, I, I probably have to correct myself. I've been calling it Medea, but I hear you both using Medea. That's closer to the French well, the spelling, French is that right? Of, yes, yeah. Yeah. French both of a Greek name. Both yes. are correct. Both yes. are acceptable. Yes. There you Indeed. go, pinch gut listeners. <laughs> Whatever you've been saying, we'll, we'll accept all, call, all comers. Um, and within the music, Aaron, what do you hear? Well, it's interesting because Charpentier, uh, even though I've mentioned he, this is a classic version of the form that Lully bequeathed to the French stage, Charpentier can't help but add his own individualistic touches. And these may have indeed uh, raised the hackles of the more conservative crowd. Um, French audiences notoriously conservative, even today, I would say, um, or at least very much aware of their history. Um, and Charpentier famously uh, travelled to Italy and he studied with Carissimi in Rome and he mm. brought back this deep knowledge of Baroque, uh, Italian Baroque drama, um, of sensuality. Um, the French are renowned for moderation and restraint and that's clear in the Lullian model. But what's wonderful about Madet is he colours certain moments with this Italianate flavour um, and he can't help but do that. Um, but he, there's some wonderful orchestral colour um, in it. Uh, he's, he's had some little hints from Lully about things like often the recorders colour supernatural scenes in Lully's opera. And in, in our show, the recorders, uh, one, a very interesting instrument is called for by Charpentier, explicitly called a bass de flute, which is a bass recorder. So when the um, spooky phantoms, these all-female chorus are summoned by Madet, Charpentier uses this little trio of spooky instruments to colour it, a little bit like Artis, actually, Lully's Artis. And also when um, Crayon is turned mad, spoiler alert, by Medet, <laughs> um, Charpentier sets this mad scene with all the lower strings of the orchestra, so it's literally abysmal. It's a really extraordinary effect. Mm. And am I right in thinking that the score or the, or the opera itself, the production, was kind of not lost exactly, but wasn't revived for hundreds of years after its premiere season, more or less, or the, the first two seasons, I think, and then we didn't hear from it until the 1980s? Yeah, like? that's right. Well, the 20th century was only the time really when um, it was in the 1970s and 80s when French scholars in particular were just reevaluating Charpentier's um, uh, importance as a, as a French composer and sadly Lully's uh, um, Lully's uh, influence was so strong in the 18th and the 19th century that it sort of overshadowed poor Charpentier so it's only in the 20th century that we we reevaluated reevaluated him as a composer of enormous merit and this is the Australian premiere of Charpentier's Medea I believe that's correct yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Justin, we got to a point in your dramatic narrative yeah. where in the opera, I think it's somewhere around the end of the third act or fourth act, things 
turn from mm, the day. Indeed. What's happening for her in that moment? What happens and, and why is it happening? You sort of alluded to it a bit already. Well, Madej's been pushed into a, a situation... I mean, she has she's done everything she can to make this relationship with Jason work. She has also sacrificed not just hours or um, but literally people into this mm. relationship. Um, and in these first three acts, we've seen her do everything she can to pre- protect it, that it may continue. At the, in Act 3, it, she's finally confronted with uh, cold hard facts, which are that she's being betrayed and that he's leading her on and that he intends to abandon her and support the idea that she's banished. And in this moment, Madej basically returns to accesses this other side of herself that she's totally set aside in order to be Jason's support, which is her supernatural side. And in fact... Um, I was reading a biography of Callus, which where she said in like in one sentence, like, "Oh well, the problem with Madea is she's a supernatural trying to be a human." And there, in one sentence, yeah, well, <laughs> is a great artist yeah, who right. totally understood the character she was playing. And I don't think we can deny that that artist did understand <laughs> the character she was doing it in another version. But that is exactly the situation. And what she does in Act Three is she releases or she accesses that divine power that she has, which is a power over other mortals. And it's also um, a separation from the world of mortal morality as well. It, she starts to conduct herself as though she were an immortal. And it's just a different, it's a very different set of rules. And uh, she lets all hell break loose. Yeah. So I have to ask in a sort of, we're not post hashtag me too, but we're sort of mid it. Are there contemporary resonances that you're bringing to this production in that sense where women are finally saying enough? Inevitably. I think it's the great, I actually think, you know, even from the Greeks point of view, it's the great female piece because it's the piece that, I mean, if you start with Euripides, you know, it's the piece where the Greek states or Athens is telling itself do not sideline the power of these people who form 50% of our population and who do not have a voice in our society. And nothing could be clearer. It is, I'm convinced, it is the point of this piece. It's the reason that it has always held such strength. Because it's the woman who says, (laughs) excuse me, don't think that I have less power than you or even the same power of you. In this case, she clearly has much more. And, yeah, I mean, in every single rehearsal, it you know, that absolutely resonates and it informs every choice we make. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it would be harder to be... It would be harder to be doing The Women of Troy, you know, or, 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 or an, a, another g- Greek piece than, than this one, I think, in a, contemporary, in a contemporary setting. Yeah, I hear the passion and commitment in your voice as you communicate that. So I'm getting goosebumps and anticipating, <laughs> uh, in anticipation of the season. Now, we see Cantillation back with Pinchgut Opera, for the first time in ages, and I'm so pleased. Backstage must be full of costumes and people and all that kind of thing. What's it like, Erin, having the chorus back? Fabulous. Yeah, the last time we worked with Cantillation um, was Platé. 
and um, it is it's a wonderful to have them and and this this kind of French drama with the large orchestra and the large chorus it's um it's uh, it's an extraordinary um, sonic adventure and um, under Justin's direction, we're also working with a wonderful movement director called Troy Hunnisett, who's an old Pinchgut um, colleague. Um, we have an extraordinary production, which uh, you simply cannot miss. Yeah, well, it opens in the first week of December, and Aaron, Justin and I all sincerely hope we'll see you there. Thanks. <laughs>